That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show Is All About You. Thank you so much if you're listening live, if you're picking it up as a podcast. Thank you so much for subscribing and leaving me a review. I really appreciate it. Really excited to spend the next hour with you uh, talking about issues that maybe are familiar uh, to all of us, but maybe we just don't talk about in quite the same way as we will uh, today. So if you'd like to know more about me, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can check me out at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. It's got episodes of this show. It's also got original writing by me, updates on my book novel project that I am currently pitching, and a whole lot more. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you. Welcome in. It is the holiday season again. And uh, there is a lot going on, of course, in the world. And today we're going to be talking about the biggest sporting event in the world, the World Cup. But first, before we do that, let's start the show like we always do by taking a really close look at the important news events of the last week and what the w- in the world is going on. Um, explosions at Russian air bases, uh, reports of. What do we know about the circumstances surrounding these? Yeah, so a couple of um, unverified explosions at two Russian air bases uh, well behind the, the front line, Engels and uh, D. Agalivo up here. They're hundreds of kilometres away from the battlefront uh, here. It follows weeks and weeks of intense uh, Russian bomber activity targeting uh, infrastructure across the whole of um, uh, the Ukraine, including today at Kyiv area and Zaporizhia area. This is, of course, news breaking this morning that uh, a couple of really big explosions at some big Russian air bases that house their nuclear bombers, the ones that are capable of carrying and launching nuclear weapons, hundreds of miles away from Russia's border with Ukraine. Uh, It certainly appears now that what happened is these were drone strikes conducted by either Ukrainian forces directly or by Ukrainian partisans working behind Russian lines and causing significant damage to two air bases where a lot of aircraft have been taking off of late, flying close to uh, Ukrainian airspace and launching cruise missiles uh, throughout the country. That, of course, has been happening for a number of weeks now. The majority of those missiles appear to be targeting civilian infrastructure in Ukraine to make things as miserable for the Ukrainian people as possible as winter sets in. So power stations, um, sewage uh, plants, uh, water stations, any of those things that really life requires to have every day to stay healthy and safe, the Russians seem to be targeting. And so Ukraine has seemingly struck back uh, in some way, shape, or form here. It is significant, not just in the sense that the distance uh, is a long way from Ukraine, and this is bringing the uh, war closer and closer to home to for Russian military forces, but it also is bringing more and more turmoil and fear to the Russian population. And make no mistake, this is probably part of Ukraine's calculus in all of this, is if the Ukrainian people are going to be literally terrorized with bombs falling on their head, Ukraine is going to turn around and do everything it can to undercut Russian public support for the war. And most polls uh, that are trustworthy 
being done inside that country as well as outside that country indicate that Putin is steadily losing support among the Russian people for this war, which is a positive development in terms of, certainly in that case, how long and what effect that's going to have on Putin, uh, nobody knows. He seems to be pretty much immune to criticism at this point. So uh, what will happen uh, moving forward with this? Will there be more of these Ukrainian attacks? It's entirely possible because everybody needs to be asking the question, how could Ukraine fly drones hundreds of miles into Russian airspace and the Russians didn't know about it? Guarantee you there's people in Russia right now freaking out over that. Right. Meanwhile, some really interesting goings on maybe in what's going on in Iran. State media, um, they're questioning this report, saying that the morality police had been disbanded. This is coming after earlier reports that the country's attorney general said the controversial morality police would be, quote unquote, abolished amidst ongoing nationwide protests. We also know that Mohammad Jafar uh, Montezari, who made the statement, is not responsible for overseeing the morality police in his role as attorney general. Uh, there has also been no comment or confirmation, and this is an important part of this, from Iran. Of course, this was news over the weekend that a lot of people made a big deal out of as, as potentially a sign that the regime was beginning to break under the strain of these three-month-long protests against the Iranian government by largely Ukraine, uh, Iranian young people, uh, particularly women. Uh, and if the morality police have been disbanded um, in, in reality, I will be very surprised. And don't just take my word for it. If you listen to a lot of the Iranian protesters themselves, watch what they're continuing to do in the streets of Iran and listen to the ones that have reached out to international news outlets, no one really believes this is happening, that somehow the morality police, who were the ones that started this whole thing by arresting a young woman who supposedly was not wearing her hijab, her headscarf correctly, and she died in their custody, the idea that they are going to be abolished would effectively take one major lever of that regime and what it's trying to do in Iran as an Islamic fundamentalist state would take it away and eliminate it. I have a hard time envisioning that the regime will actually do that. Now, the very fact that somebody high up, the attorney general in Iran, would come out and say this, whether or not it's true or not, that by itself is an indicator that the strain is starting to hit. Because suddenly, if there's more miscommunication among the highest levels of the Iranian government or one, or some one group trying to leverage against another group, that kind of internal infighting is usually a good sign if you're part of a protest movement that you're having an effect. So rather than having this diminish the enthusiasm and the rigor of the protests, my guess is that they are just going to amp up because, as they say, there's blood in the water. And so if that's the case, look for this situation to continue to get worse and perhaps crescendo as we move forward. Okay, and one other piece. Um, <laughs> maybe we've hit the basement on this one, the floor, but let's, uh, let's find out. Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, got his Twitter account suspended again for making anti-Semitic posts. The rapper tweeted an image on Thursday that appeared to show a swastika inside a Star of David. The post was blocked by Twitter for violating its rules, and Elon Musk said West's account was suspended, quote, for incitement to violence. It came after Ye went on Alex Jones's Infowars and praised Hitler and said that the Holocaust never happened. All right, so perhaps the floor has been found, everyone. To say I like Hitler is as bad as is really where the line gets drawn now. 
And that by itself is on one level encouraging. I'm glad that Elon Musk, who seemingly doesn't really care about moderating his new platform very much, at least drew a line on this one. But it's also really sad that that is now our line of demarcation, that I like Hitler is really where everybody goes, ooh, Okay, I remember a time not too long ago where the floor was much higher than that. Um, I am really reluctant to give Ye and all of his you know, fellow yahoos like Nick Fuentes and, uh, and even Donald Trump a whole lot more attention here. And yet, nevertheless, I think it's really important to do so because this is indicative of something much larger, the erosion of... Moral understanding and acceptance collectively and individually has been eroded so much to a degree in this country that somebody has to come out and say, I like Hitler and post a swastika inside a Star of David for people on the right to just go, OK, yeah, that's enough. Right. Or at least really prominent people on the right, but certainly not all of them. What has been most depressing to me has not just been those statements, uh, which are depressing enough, but the continued general mute silence from many on in the Republican Party on the right to denounce this. Certainly some very prominent senators and politicians have done so. Certainly some of uh, Donald Trump's potential rivals in the 2024 primary race for president have, ste- have stepped out and asked him to apologize. But the very fact that there are still people who will not condemn this, and then following that up over the weekend, President Trump came out and said what he's obviously been thinking for a very long time, that the Constitution should just be terminated uh, (laughs) because of the Hunter Biden stuff that Elon Musk, same guy who banned Ye, released, which is much ado about nothing. He came out and finally said, it's time to terminate the Constitution. And then this morning got all upset again and said, I never said we should terminate the Constitution, even though his statement says terminate the Constitution. The very fact that there are still Republican politicians and followers who will not stand against this says way more about them at this point than it does about Donald Trump, about Ye, about Hitler, or any of those things. And the fact that we are at this point, as you can tell from my tone of voice, is beyond outrage for me. Um, It's beyond head shaking. It is beyond the pale of what I ever thought I would see. And it is a new reality that honestly is going to take me a little bit of time to adjust to and respond to more effectively. At least I have a platform here where I can at least rage about it for a few minutes. So, all right. So there's the news for this week. Now I got so excited to launch into things. I forgot to thank this show's sponsor, longtime sponsor airway science for kids, which is a nonprofit based down the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities to underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds of possibilities. And they range everything from being a pilot uh, to being an aircraft mechanic to working uh, for big companies and things like accounting and you know anything you can think of, hundreds and hundreds of career options. And this organization helps kids identify where their passions are, helps them develop 21st century skills uh, to act upon them, and to learn how to advocate for themselves and to better guide their own lives, whether they ever get into aerospace or not. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, and you can hear all about them. So thanks to them. You'll hear more about them during the upcoming show breaks, one of which will be coming here fairly soon. However, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about 
today's topic. This is probably, if I was going to do a fourth clip in the news, this would probably be my fourth one. The biggest sporting event in the world, bar none, is currently going on. Of course, I am talking about the World Cup going on in Qatar, the small uh, Middle Eastern country that, uh, to many people's surprise, about 12 years ago, was given the rights uh, by FIFA, the the international governing body of, of international soccer, stands for the Federation of International Football Associations. Uh, granted to them back then, and it has been controversial ever since. And that's really what we're going to talk about today as a way to talk a little bit more in some ways about sports in general. And I just want to make really clear here right from the very outset. I am a huge sports fan, particularly of things like soccer. So I am following the World Cup. I follow, it happens every four years, and I follow what's going on with all the national teams during uh, the intervening years as they play one another to qualify. And really, this is a tournament of the best of the best who have gone through years of qualifying with their national teams and are now playing for national pride on an international stage for a literal world championship. There's not a whole lot of sports where you can claim that, but this is one of them. And uh, the World Cup, this next one, is going to be here in the United States as well as uh, in partnership with Canada and Mexico in 2026. But the last two, uh, this, this current World Cup and then the previous one in 2018 in Russia, have been full of controversy primarily because those are two countries that are not democratic in any way, shape, or form, despite claims otherwise. And this World Cup in particular has been problematic. And if you've paid any close attention to the news, you've probably seen some of the various stories about why this World Cup is leaving a really sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. And there's a whole lot of reason for it. And it first starts with the fact that Qatar is a very interesting country to have been chosen to do this. Back in 2010, when they were selected by FIFA, people were wondering, how did this actually happen? Qatar is a very small country in the Middle East. It's one of the small uh, Arab Emirates right there on the, um, the peninsula. Uh, its neighbors are Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates. All of them very rich oil states run by royal families. And because of that, they have an enormous amount of wealth. Not, it's, it's certainly in oil, but then, of course, that, those profits go out into international investment of all various kinds. Qatar is very tiny. And by that, to give you some context here in the United States, it's 80% the size of the state of Connecticut. So just let that sink in. <laughs> it's 80% that size. The majority of its population, which it's, it's, uh, its home population, is about 380,000 people. They all live largely around the capital city of Doha. And currently, though, there are about 4 million, just under 4 million uh, people living there. 90% of them migrant workers who have, over the last 12 years, were brought in to effectively build a country under this World Cup bid. And I literally do mean that. When Qatar got the, the permission from FIFA and were approved to run this in 2022, there was only one soccer-ready stadium in Qatar. One. They, they needed eight. So that means they were going to have to build seven soccer stadiums of anywhere from 60,000 people capacity to 80,000 people. So they had to be built. But then also you're going to have hundreds of thousands of visitors coming in from around the world. So they needed hotels. They didn't have hotels. They needed 100 miles of roads. They didn't have hundreds of miles of roads. They needed an updated sewage system, water system. 
They needed uh, more effective public transportation. They had to modernize their airport. Pretty much everything that you need to build a city, (laughs) to build a country, they did not have when they petitioned to host the World Cup. And the idea from the Qataris' point of view, from the royal family's point of view, was get the biggest sporting event in the world, despite Qatar having no history, really, of soccer prowess in any way, shape, or form, be the first country among their Arab rivals in the Middle East to host a World Cup and use that exposure, the money that was going to come in, and their own very, very uh, deep pockets to build essentially the infrastructure of a country to run this. And then as soon as the one month long tournament was over, which will be done in a couple of weeks, you have presto a whole modern state, more or less in terms of infrastructure. That was the idea. And it is the most expensive World Cup in history. Estimates are Qatar has spent $220 billion. That's billion with a B to make this whole thing happen and everything that was required. The problem is, is in a country with such small population, all of that infrastructure was going to have to be built relatively quickly. Ten years sounds like a long time, but it's not. So all that had to be built quickly. And as I just mentioned, they have a very small population. So they're going to have to import workers to do this. And that is where the trouble began, but certainly was not at the end of it. And the problems are continuing through this current World Cup that is currently now in the knockout stages, meaning we're getting towards the end. So when we come back from our first break, I'm going to dig a little deeper into this. And then by the end of the show, talk a little bit about some of the ramifications of this for all of us. And how should we think about things like this, in particular, the power of sport in the world? All right. So we'll be right back on this show is all about you. Stick around. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back to this show. It's all about you. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. We are talking about the World Cup going on in the Middle Eastern Emirate of Qatar currently. Um, And certainly the controversies have been out there uh, for a very long time of why this country is hosting it. Ideally, though, I want to get past that and talk a little bit about how we view it. Because what's happening in Qatar with the World Cup Um, is producing a level of dis-ease and anxiety and concern and reflection in me, not just about my support for this current World Cup, which I'm finding difficult to get too excited about, even though I am following it, but also about sports in general and where it fits in our society and our our larger psyche, Um, and not just because of the amount of money that is spent on it every year. So let's let's continue with this conversation and use, use the World Cup as this sort of this launching point. As I mentioned before the break, 
$220 billion spent by the Emirate of Qatar to make this happen. They have built seven uh, additional soccer stadiums, but the country is so small that all of those stadiums are so close together that if you were to pick them up and put them down in the United States, where they're configured, they would fit inside the city of Dallas without a problem. Okay, so these are all very, very close together. And so the whole world is paying attention to this. And the people that are visiting are all in one spot. When Qatar got the bid from FIFA back in 2010, a lot of people said, how is this possible? The country has no infrastructure to speak of and no soccer uh, tradition to speak of. How is it possible that they could do this? Now, certainly they spent a lot of money. The Qatari royal family paid big time names in international soccer, millions of dollars to do ads and be part of their proposals to FIFA on their behalf. They certainly hosted a lot of the 22 different voting members of FIFA who make these decisions every four years of who's going to get the World Cup, hosted them in Qatar as well as other areas around the world, and gave them very, very polished presentations uh, about all the things they were going to be able to do and why this would be such a big deal to bring the World Cup to the Middle East for the first time. And certainly it is a big deal uh, in that sense. But of course, this was dogged uh, almost right away by claims there must have been corruption involved in this. And there are signs that there was some. There were some undercover uh, reporters for um, international newspapers like The Guardian and other ones that uh, posing as members of the Qatari delegation got uh, members of this 22-member 22 uh, 22 committee from FIFA on tape offering their bids for $1.5 million or $1.8 million, effectively saying, if you pay me this amount of money, because you have a lot of it, Qatar, I will vote for you guys to get the 2022 World Cup. There were three instances of that. There were also a number of investigations into whether or not Qatar offered bribes to high-level FIFA officials to move them up the list against a number of other countries who already had the infrastructure and the stadiums and the hotels and all those things that are necessary, including countries like the United States, Canada, and Mexico that got pushed a little further down the schedule because Qatar got this. So there were claims of that. The Qataris have denied this very beginning. There's never been a smoking gun about it, but there was enough of a controversy that uh, the FBI got involved in this and other um, security organizations in the United States picking up enough evidence that they presented to FIFA saying there's something rotten going on behind the scenes here. And it cost a number of high-ranking FIFA officials their jobs back in about 2014, 2015. And of course, there's been a lot of denials ever since. Now, in addition to that, the new FIFA leadership that came on board that was overseeing the 2018 uh, World Cup in Russia, and then of course, this 2022 Cup, came out effectively and said, the new leadership said that sometimes it's a lot easier to deal with countries that are not democracies when you are trying to negotiate World Cups. Now, certainly it might have been somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but the idea was when you're talking to Vladimir Putin in Russia and he says, yes, we will do this, if you're FIFA, you can pretty much count on it going to happen because he's a dictator. And with the Qatari royal family, it's dictatorial in how it runs its country, meaning the wishes of the royal family are what gets codified into law and acted upon and the royal family has the right to change their mind at any given time, and it has to be enacted in Qatari law. So the idea was, if the royal family of Qatar is willing to promise all these things, 
That makes it much easier for us to negotiate a deal, makes it much easier for the money to be guaranteed that will flow in, and makes it much easier for us, FIFA, to organize an event that we think will be successful. Well, hopefully they're paying attention. I wouldn't count on it. Um, I personally believe FIFA is one of the most inept um, international sporting organizations on the planet when it comes to um, its own self-awareness. You would hope that on one level after these last two World Cups have been problematic, to say the least, that there might be a little bit of soul-searching going on. Who knows if that will ever happen. But nevertheless, Qatar got the bid despite all of this controversy and then continued to stay in the news for all the wrong reasons. I mentioned to you before that currently 90% of the just under 4 million residents in Qatar aren't from Qatar. They are not Qatari citizens. They are migrant workers. Many of them come from South Asia, so India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, some from Western African countries, some from the Philippines, drawn to Qatar by the promise of getting really well-paying jobs relatively from where they're from, being able to make enough money, helping build this infrastructure in Qatar, the stadiums, the metro system, sewage, water, all that stuff, more money doing that than they would staying at home. However, until recently, uh, there was a system in Qatar and in a number of these other um, Arab Emirates where this still exists, a system called the Khalafa system. And it's essentially indentured servitude. And so imagine you are a worker who's trying to feed his or her family in one of these countries uh, that I just mentioned. And there's an opportunity knowing that the World Cup is going to be built and this is a 10-year-plus infrastructure project that you can make a good amount of money on. And there's a number of companies coming to you saying, hey, come to Qatar, we'll pay you for this, work for this company, this company, and you sign an agreement to go do that. And they fly you over there. But then, under the Khalafa system, here's the deal. If you decide you don't like that job, you can't leave without their permission of that employer. You can't leave. There's also no enforcement that they're going to pay you what they say they're going to pay you. And you get there and find out that the accommodations that, they're, that you're supposed to be living in, which are supposed to be paid for by these companies, either are non-existent or are uh, <laughs> so bad, in fact, that there's no air conditioning. And this is in a country in the summer. It gets 125 degrees uh, in daylight. And you're going to be working longer hours than you were told. You may not have electricity. You may not have running water. And, of course, you can't leave. Now, some estimates are, as these, as these migrant workers came in by the thousands and were being treated poorly, and this was something that the uh, Qatari authorities tried to keep the press away from for 10 years as much as possible. There are reports in some newspapers that as many as 7,500 migrant workers have died over the last 10 years building all of these big public works projects required for the World Cup. This is a year-round uh, series of projects that have gone on, which means these migrant workers have been working out in the sun in the summertime, 125 degrees, and many of them. Uh, died from that process. Now, the official Qatari statistics are much lower, as probably isn't surprising. But the weird way they classified a lot of these deaths, the ones that they did admit, was that these workers died of natural causes. Which, reflect for a minute, if you think about it, everybody dies on some level of natural cause. Your body stops working, right? But, all flippancy aside, what they essentially were dying from was heat prostration, Heart failure, organ failure, dehydration, all those things that effectively shut down the body's ability to regulate itself, control itself, and keep it upright and moving in a healthy way. 
that is an astronomical number of people. If those reports are true, even if they're a little bit lower, the general agreed, agreed upon amount by uh, international observers is about 6,000. Over the course of the 10-year process to build this, that meant there was a worker dying just about every other day in Qatar on average to make these games happen. So literally you have, when you all those games are on um, TV lately and, and half, the, half the world is watching them, all of those stadiums were built by this indentured servitude under this Khalafa system, and people literally died making them. They didn't die from accidents. They died from their working conditions. That by itself makes me uneasy when I watch it because I'm aware of that. I've been watching the matches on TV, and I wonder how many people died making this stadium. That's not a good look, right, for Qatar or for FIFA. But it's also not a really good look for any of us who are watching this if we aren't going to acknowledge that we are watching an event for our entertainment that exists purely for our entertainment and to make money off of that enjoyment, that we are getting all of that at the price of migrant workers being worked to death. And the ones that have not died had to stay there and continue to work in those terrible conditions and even though Qatar has now abolished the Khalafa system and made much of the deal that they are the first Arab country, the first Arab emirate to do that, even though they've established a minimum wage in the country of $275, uh, $275 a month, which still isn't very much, despite the fact they made a big deal out of all of that, they did all of that once the majority of all these projects, particularly the stadiums and the hotels, were all completed just within the last couple of years. So they want maximum thanks for essentially doing something, for using the system law as long as they could get away with it, is what it's come down to. And this criticism has continued into the games. Now, one of the reasons also that uh, Qatar got the games was because uh, they said, we are going to welcome everybody who wants to be here. And of course, if people are going to go to the World Cup, they want A, to be safe, B, they want to have a good time. Certainly for B, second part of that is they want to be able to drink beer and enjoy and have parties and all this kind of stuff, and it's a big deal. Qatar agreed, even though it is a conservative Muslim country that frowns on alcohol consumption, they said, we will allow it. Well, remember what I said about the Qatari emir's ability to, the royal family's ability to just change things? They did. When it came down to it, despite the fact that companies like Budweiser had multi-million dollar arrangements with Qatar to supply beer. Within a week of the World Cup starting, Qatar decided, even though they'd agreed, okay, we'll allow alcohol at the stadium area, we'll put it around there. Literally, members of the royal family went to see what these party areas around the stadiums looked like, didn't like them, went back and reported it to the head of the royal family, who then said, nope, no beer at the World Cup. And so Budweiser, in particular, who was the big sp sponsor of this, suddenly has shelled out $750 million worth of product that was supposed to go to Qatar. Now, they decided something rather clever, I thought. They're going to send all that beer to whichever country wins the World Cup. <laughs> so they're going to be fine. So I'm not going to shed any tears for Anheuser-Busch or for Budweiser or for any of them. That's not the point. But the point is, is that that's what happens when you make a deal with a country that can change the terms of its agreements whenever it feels like it without any consequences. 
And it was that just seemed to be the the cherry on top of the big concern cupcake that a lot of people had about whether or not this was a good World Cup to go to or not. Because um, a number of soccer organizations, fan organizations out there, um, and there are many around the world, told a lot of women in their organizations it might not be safe for them to go to the World Cup in Qatar. Because under Qatari law, a woman who reports a sexual assault is assumed to be guilty of committing a crime. So that's the first thing. Second, homosexuality is illegal in the Emirate, as it is most countries in the Middle East. And so there were deep concerns among the LGBTQ plus communities um, around the world that it would not be safe for them to go to Qatar. Now, the Qatari official statements were, we will welcome everyone, but we want everybody to respect our customs and our traditions. And this is where the rub gets tough. Because a number of those people, women, members of the LGBTQ plus community, did not go to the World Cup. And there were attempts by teams going to the World Cup, national teams, big teams, like England, particularly the European teams, who wanted to make a statement about all these things I just mentioned. They wanted to go play in the World Cup because it is the pinnacle, right, of these players' careers, and it's the biggest sport in the world. But they wanted to make a statement about all the human rights abuses in Qatar, about all the concerns about sending this to a non-democratic country, and about their laws about women and LGBTQ plus rights. So they wanted to do things first, like maybe have uh, black jerseys that they would wear as a protest, and FIFA said no. Then it slowly whittled down to the captains of each team would wear an armband, rainbow colored, that would say one love on them. They were going to do that. But then once the teams were in Qatar ready to go, FIFA, of course, wanting to keep everything smooth, right, smooth running, came out and said, if your captains wear those armbands, your teams will be sanctioned. And that means you might have players who miss games. And this is the World Cup. Right? These individual players don't want to miss games. These national teams don't want to literally cause riots back home if something happens and don't want to reduce their chances of winning this coveted championship. And so they all caved every single one of them under FIFA pressure. And so there have been no big statements like that from any of these teams on the, on the pitch or off the pitch in all of this. Essentially FIFA took the side of the Qataris in all of this and strong armed this forward. But all of these teams caved to that. And if you're asking the question, if they truly believed in protesting this, why are they playing in the first place? That is a very legitimate question. But in the end, it comes down to the choice between making a political statement or an ethical, moral statement, as powerful as it would be, or missing out on the entire tournament. Those teams didn't think too long about it. They weren't going to miss the tournament. And so that brings me, of course, to this very uneasy reality about the World Cup. I am a huge fan of soccer. I have played it. I played it from the time I was a kid and all the way through college. Always enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the growing popularity of soccer in this country, uh, particularly where I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's very big. I've enjoyed all of that. I followed the English Premier League over the weekends. Tottenham Hotspur is my team. I'm a big fan of the sport. And yet, what is happening in Qatar, the basis of all of this, and the previous World Cup in Russia in 2018 wasn't much better, but for a lot of different reasons that now make a whole lot of sense in light of the war of Ukraine, in Ukraine. I'm 
deep, becoming increasingly uneasy with the cost for me personally that me continuing to root for these sports, to contribute whatever it is I'm contributing, even if it's just my attention, to things that have this darker undercurrent, that have, that have cost so many of my fellow human beings so much more than it should ever cost. I find myself questioning the degree to which I want to participate and support these type of endeavors going forward. And I honestly don't have an answer because I love the sport so much. So when we come back from the second break, let's talk a little bit more about that and maybe some things for each of us to reflect on, those of us who are sports fans and maybe also those of us who are not. We'll be right back on this show's All About You. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back to this show is all about you. I am JBK Winnikin, your host, and we are talking about uh, the World Cup and the cost of fandom, I suppose. Uh, and this this current World Cup in Qatar, as I talked about uh, before the uh, previous breaks, uh, is problematic to put it in the most neutral terms possible. Uh, and if we're going to really push it out, um, unethical and immoral um, on a number of levels in terms of the cost to which this event has been put together and is being run. And who knows uh, what the effects of this will be in the long run. But in the end, the larger lesson that I've been drawing from it is, is in the end, the power of this sort of national identity around these soccer teams, combined with the players' desire to play on the highest stage possible in their sport, which I get, and of course, the allure of entertainment for fans and the allure of money for people who put these on and by countries that host such big events, in the end seemingly have won out yet again over these very, very real moral and ethical questions. And this would be an easy spot to sit here and deride all sports and profitability as the biggest part of the problem. And I know there are listeners out there who will just say, yep, pretty much stop right there. We spend too much money on sports. We give it too much of our attention. You have players in various sports around the world who are making money that is exponentially higher than most anybody else in any other profession. And there's something wrong with that. And you can't really deny all of those facts are true. That athletes around the world are championed more so than a lot of other people. Some, most of the most famous people in the world tend to be athletes, maybe rock stars as well or politicians. Um, but it's not necessarily always the people you hope it would be, right? 
the people with a lot of money get a lot of attention. At the top of the show, I reluctantly mentioned, yay, why do we know who he is? He's got a lot of money. Why does Elon Musk, why do, do we have to pay attention to him? Because he's got a lot of money and he's got platforms, right? All these types of things. It can be really easy to be cynical about that. So let's just acknowledge the reality that there's big disparities there. Whether, they sh- whether that's okay or not, right, is a question that everybody has to decide upon. For me, it's always been a bit unsettling. As you've, those longtime listeners of this show know that I love baseball more than any other sport. And baseball in the United States is probably not the most popular sport anymore. Uh, football is, American football is. Uh, however, you wouldn't know it by the amount of money that baseball players get paid. And right now is the big free agent signing period, big trading period between seasons. And there are a number of people paying uh, who are getting new contracts. And one player today, Justin Verlander, just got a two-year deal from the New York Mets uh, to get $43 million a year for two years uh, to pitch for the Mets, which means he p- pitches in every fifth game. <laughs> so $43 million to pitch every fifth game. He's not even an everyday player. Uh, Justin Verlander is an amazing pitcher. He's also pretty old. Um, I'm not sure why the Mets decided to do this, but that's not the larger point. The point is, is that the market that has been set by these, um, by the popularity of baseball, by the wealth of these teams, which is determined by the amount of money and attention that fans spend on them, has justified a market where a pitcher can get $43 million a year to pitch in every fifth game. That is the market. Now, for free market advocates, yep, that's how it is. There's popularity there, the demand for that, and the popularity of it's high, therefore the prices go up. Okay, fine. Let's let that sit there. However, then it, cer- it seems to me that where all of this starts coming back at us, as we point fingers out at all these multimillionaires and the billionaires who pay them, and the countries that will grease palms to get the big events and exploit people to make it happen, as we point all those fingers out at them, as my kindergarten teacher once told me, and I'm sure somebody else has told you, you point your finger out at one person, you got three pointing back at you. It seems to come back to me, and I'm in a spot where I'm wondering more and more um, about this unease that is continuing to grow in me. You name a sport, there's a good chance that I've watched it, I've followed it, and team sports in particular I really enjoy. Baseball I enjoy, soccer I enjoy. I also enjoy American football. And I enjoy it quite a bit, actually. And yet, that's a sport that uh, the organization, the National Football League, has had, shall we say, a fairly checkered past in taking care of its players, particularly players who no longer play. There were cases in court for years where retired players, who the majority of them leave the league because of injury, not because they're choosing to walk away. They're having to leave because their health has been affected, who sued the NFL for years trying to get a better pension plan to help them, particularly in uh, medical care, for all the problems they had after their playing days, right, from multiple broken bones, in particular from shots to the head that had caused so many concussions and, of course, the, the, the brain deteriorating condition of CTE, which has been in the news a lot. It's only been relatively recently that the NFL has put programs in place that will effectively help players when they enter the league, not spend all their money recklessly, and then help set up plans for them to be able to take care of themselves with some NFL contributions 
to take care of their, their health later on down the line. The NFL has had a reputation more so than any other sports league on earth to care only about the product that is being put on the field today. And if you aren't able to play today, you no longer make them money, and so you no longer matter. That has been the message that they gave out for almost 15 years as this process took time to play out. And so now, the average, player, the average career length for a player in the NFL is just under three years because of injury and the difficulty of coming back. And of course, the popularity of the sport means a lot of players are coming in who are healthier, who can take the spot of somebody who might be coming off an injury. And there's only 32 teams out there to play for. So there's a, it's a very, very small pool. And so those players now have a little bit of a better chance beyond their playing careers, which for many of them will be over before they're out of their 20s. What do they do after that? Now, certainly, these players mostly come out of college ranks, and there are some who get their degrees. There are some who don't. There are some who work on their degrees while they're in the NFL during the offseason, and some who go back to school afterwards, certainly. Right? But to what degree is the league, and this wouldn't just be true of the NFL, but of Major League Baseball, FIFA, you name it, to what degree are these leagues invested in helping these individual players have successful careers and navigate them successfully financially in such a way that it takes care of them. Generally speaking, as a rule, these big associations and sports leagues have cared way less about that than they have about making sure the dollars continue to come in from fans coming to games, buying uh, souvenirs, buying food and drink, watching on TV, giving them an experience, quote-unquote, that is memorable, that hopefully they will continue to turn into a uh, family tradition and bring their kids, and the cycle continues. They've historically cared a lot more about that than they have about taking care of the people that are actually doing the entertaining in all of this. Now, it's easy to say, well, what about their salaries? They're making huge salaries. That's their compensation. Yes, for some. But the majority of professional players in any sport are not making the news like Justin Verlander I just mentioned, for getting multi-millions of dollars. Most of them are getting league minimum prices, which are still high for people like you and me. Major League Baseball league minimum now is just under $750,000 per season, right? But this is not going to be a career that somebody can play for 50 years. They'll be playing it for a short period of time. And to what degree is the league willing to help those players use that money wisely knowing that they have an opportunity to make that money stretch much further beyond their playing career. Particularly when players being flashy with their money, dressing up, driving around great cars, right, being on TikTok, are all in the interest of the promos of these leagues. It's not an easy set of answers. That's not my point. But the very fact that there are... there is that kind of tension and dilemma causes me some disquiet. And I've learned enough about myself to know that when I'm feeling that kind of disquiet in my gut, I need to pay attention to it and not as much to all the different justifications, rationalizations, and reasons that my brain can come up with about how, well, all that is this and this, but you know what? I really do enjoy this, so that's going to win out. If I ask myself, Literally, when I'm sitting at a game, like an NFL game, I'm going to enjoy this, and 
mo- the majority of those players that I see down there that I'm cheering for or cheering against won't be in the league in a few years. I won't even know what happened to them, and I probably won't care. If I ask myself that sitting in the seat, <laughs> I'm not sure how much of an enjoyment of, enjoyment of the game I'm going to have. And maybe I should pay attention to that. And it's not just about the question about money. If, these, if all this money is being spent here, why aren't we spending it on other things that could be more helpful to larger society? That is a great question. That is the, the biggest question oftentimes that gets thrown around. It has everything to do with personal choice and where greed fits in and where the desire to do things our own way for our own enjoyment wins out over our sense of shared responsibility, our willingness to connect with others and to help others. All of us make those choices on a daily basis, whether we're talking about sports or talking about something else. And yet, that disquiet, that dis-ease eats at me. What also eats at me, of course, is that for so many of these players, you know, not all of them, but many of them, there are a number of players, particularly from underserved, marginalized communities around the world, who believe that excelling in sports is the only way for them to escape their difficult circumstances. And not, you know, for as popular as football, baseball, soccer, all those are around the world, the very fact of their popularity indicates how few people who actually play it will ever get to the level to play it professionally, and fewer still will reach that rarefied air where they're getting multi-million dollar contracts to play for a period of time and have enough money that if they're wise about it, they maybe never even need to work again. We know the names of those famous players in all these sports for a reason, because if there were 200,000 people just like them making that amount of money, we wouldn't know their names. And while it's inspiring and while team sports are particularly powerful in helping kids build a sense of teamwork, camaraderie, sacrifice, really important things. When we start getting into the dreams of professional play and what that all means and the money that comes with it and the meat grinder that it can be for people, in the case of Qatar, literally killing people, when we get to that, it seems to me a very important individual human question to ask, why is this worth so much to me just simply for me to have some enjoyment of a sporting event for a few hours and get away from the day in, day out of my life? And I'm not coming on here to give you some big answer here at the end of what it all means. Because I don't have an answer. For me, it's a struggle. For me, it's increasingly becoming something that I'm having to pay close attention to. And I think it's affecting me in the way that I spend my money. I love going to baseball games. I'm not going to as many as I used to. I enjoy football. I'm not watching it as often as I used to. I want my money and my attention to go to more things that don't produce that kind of anxiety in me, where I don't have to hear stories about what's happening in Qatar and elsewhere and feel that I am some small way, I'm a part of that. I'm wanting to move away from those things. And so if this is something that sounds familiar to you, I would encourage you simply to just sit with it. Don't have to answer anything. Don't have to make any decisions at all. And certainly, I would like to think there are ways for any of us who want to be fans of a sport to be able to do so 
<coughs> excuse me, and be able to look ourselves in the mirror and feel okay about it. Not just on a fan level, but on a human level. So that's what I'm going to be thinking about as the World Cup wraps up in Qatar. I'm going to be glad when it's done. And hopefully, better decisions will be made in the long run of which countries get to host these. It'd be nice to kind of come up with some general principles of where of what should be going on in various countries they get to host the World Cup. It might be a really good incentive the other direction rather than just who can give us the most money, no matter their size, their location, or their practice. But, you know, I've been accused of being a dreamer before. <laughs> this might be another one, too. And you know what? I'll embrace it. I'd rather be a dreamer than a cynic. All right. So thank you for joining me for this episode of This Show is All About You. Remember, you can check out more about me at wordsbyjdk.com or by finding me on uh, face, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, of course, you can find all of this episode and every other episode of this show wherever you find your podcasts. If you do that, please uh, subscribe and leave me a review. Really appreciate that. And I look forward to uh, having you on future shows with me. All right. So my thank yous as I always do. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks again, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week. Has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Stacey Heller, Ashley Kniebel, Bruce Bullard, Antoinette Bernardo, Heidi Lloyd, Phil McCoy, Ken and Margaret Winnikin, Kevin Simpson, Bruce Flommer, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to whoever makes cold medicine. I know you probably make billions of dollars, but when I am sick, I'm very thankful for you. That's why I wasn't here last week. Thanks also to my parents who delayed their Thanksgiving dinner by one day just so I could get in one more recovery day of illness and actually have Thanksgiving dinner with them. That was awesome. So thanks, Mom and Dad. And thank you to the Human Potential Institute for the wonderful coaching certification program that I'm finishing up. It has been life-changing for me, and I'll have more to tell all of you listeners about that in the coming weeks. And speaking of you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And to send you off to the rest of your week, let's end with this original haiku. At what price does our entertainment become costly for others? Chins up, everyone.